Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and as a family, we seek to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service, as well as encouraging stories and conversations with members of our community. We hope you'll subscribe. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but those delight, but sorry, but who, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on the law day and night, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. And in whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like chaff, that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. For sinners in the assembly of the righteous, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas, and it is great to be with you this morning, and I am very excited to preach to you my first sermon here at LSQ. How about that? Uh, I I didn't finish yet. Well, I might not be as excited for Michael's feedback after the sermons, but uh, there's always room to improve and to grow, right? And speaking of improvement and growth, it's about to be 2022, and the chance for change and growth is what I love so much about the first few days of a new year. It can really be so filled with hope, and for a lot of us, the changing of a year is exactly what we need. Look, I believe that God's promises are new every morning, but it can still feel really good to sort of hit the reset button in an official sort of way. And so the new year is also a time of New Year's resolutions. And I love resolutions because it gives us a chance to improve, to start over, and to address that area in life that we know that we're falling short in. We are looking to improve our lives so that we can be happier. You know, I used to work in sales, and the team next to us actually sold to fitness centers and gyms exclusively. And for whatever reason, they seemed to be the only uh, vertical in our entire company that made a profit in January. Now, I wonder why that would be. And so the desire to make a change is deep within all of us, and it is something that we can all benefit from. But then did you ever notice what happens to our resolutions, usually sometime later in January, when we try to make these changes? Our life gets in the way. It becomes harder to be motivated for that run after a busy day at work. You pass by Shake Shack, and well, they're advertising a new shake in the window, and so you have to stop in and try that as well. And if we are trying to improve our lives spiritually, we face similar but far more devastating temptations than a milkshake or a missed run. If we are working to control our temper, for example, we will inevitably explode if our strategy is to simply bottle up that anger. And so if we don't have a strategy or plan on how to achieve our goals, our efforts will fall flat. And so I wanted to preach on Psalm 1 today because we often look to the Psalms when we are trying to recommit ourselves to God, uh, as I'm sure many of us will be doing here in the new year. Because the Psalms, they really do serve as a roadmap for God's people on how to live in light of the promises that God made to us 
and on how to experience the life that God has created us and redeemed us for. So many of us come to the Psalms to do just that. And so if you have come to the Psalms, you certainly have come to the right place. And Psalm 1 gives us a perfect image of who we ought to be, who we want to be, and ultimately who we long to be. And so when we look at Psalm 1, we see what seems to be an answer as to how to achieve the life that God calls us to. The psalm truly sets the stage for the entire book of the psalms in a very blunt and easy-to-understand way. And at first glance, we read it and we feel great. As we look to change our lives and find happiness, we like simple instructions that separate good from bad. Blessed or good, wicked or bad, you have two choices, got it, on to the next one. But if we look at the psalm in this way, we make a grave, grave mistake. For we go into the world thinking that we know how to apply this psalm, only to inevitably realize that what we thought the psalm meant will not sustain us. And so proper understanding and application is key, and that's what we want to do here today with Psalm 1. So let's dive in and look more closely at the psalm. And when we do, it gives us a firm warning that there are only two destinies that we can face. And this is an extremely important concept for us to understand, because this psalm is far more than instructions on how to live a good, holy life. This is not a feel-good psalm, and I hate to get fire and brimstone on you for the final sermon of the year, but this is the reality of the text. And if we fail to understand the severity of this, we risk missing the point of the psalm and the gospel altogether. And so what I'm going to do here is I'm going to bring you down for about 10 or 12 minutes here. And I'm sorry about that. I will bring you back up. Um, But we really do need to sort of sit in the muck here for a little bit. There are two destinies that we face as humans. We are either going to be blessed or we will stand judgment. There is no middle ground. The text tells us that the path to righteousness is through avoiding temptation and remaining perfectly obedient to the law. Piece of cake, right? Well, let's find out. So we're going to look at three points today. The first is our two paths. The second is the two destinies that we face. And finally, how the righteous life is achieved. First, for the two paths. Uh, The first word in our text is blessed. And so this is the goal of the righteous path that we see in verses 1 through 3. We want to understand what a blessed man or woman looks like. The Hebrew word for blessed is a share, which also means happiness. Uh, In fact, if you look at some translations, it will actually read, happy is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, etc. And so immediately, we are connecting the blessed to those who are happy. And so the text then seeks to explain what the blessed or happy person does. And we see that it is a series of actions, all of which are things that we are not supposed to do. We are not to walk in step with the wicked. We are not to stand in the way that sinners take, and we are not to sit in the company of mockers. Walk, stand, and sit. Now, many commentators see these commands as a progression between the three, and their argument would go like this. To walk with someone is to be associated with them, but not as deeply as it would be to stand with them or to sit with them. Uh, So we immediately see again that blessing is tied to the actual company that we keep. And because in who we surround ourselves with matters. And because of our fallen nature, we have an innate desire to do at the very least walk in step with the wicked from time to time. You know, I remember when I was about 14, I wanted to start hanging out with the bad crowd. No other way to put it, it was the bad kids and I wanted to be a part of it. And my mom didn't want me to hang out with those kids, naturally so. And I said, well, mom, I can just hang out with them. I'll never do the things that they do, right? And I remember she told me, she said, when you hang out with bad people, you end up doing bad things. 
Now look, this is oversimplifying things a little bit, and most of these bad kids ended up to have wonderful lives and have wonderful families now. But my mom was right, because I did end up hanging out with those bad kids eventually, and I did end up doing some bad things. Um, so the company that we keep truly does matter. And this is especially relevant for us as we live in New York City today, because this is a city that is extremely secular and often openly hostile to us as Christians. And yet here is where the tension lies. You know, I really believe that we have been called to be here for one purpose or another. But this means that we have to live and work and brush up against the culture every single day. And as a result, unless we lock ourselves in our apartments, we're going to run the risk of being influenced by our culture, which in many ways runs counter to how we are called to live as Christians. And so to be influenced by our culture is unavoidable to some extent. And I'm certainly not saying that all of secular culture is bad and that we shouldn't have friends who aren't believers or anything like that. Uh, we are, as Christians, not called to self-isolate, but we are called to engage with the culture. But what happens when we stand in the way that sinners take? Well, someone asked John Lennon once how he manages walking around New York City and not being mobbed by fans constantly. And he replied, it's not so bad if I just keep walking. It's when I stop that I have problems. And I love this because if you keep walking, you are at least moving in a direction, presumably away from the sinners. You can bob and weave as you go, and this is not nearly as bad as stopping to have a good long look. But when you plant your feet and stand in the way that sinners take, this takes us to another level. At this point, you have interrupted the path that you were on to engage more deeply. You stop and you take a look, and at this point, you are probably joining in. And when we stop, it leaves us subject to influences that can overwhelm us, just like the mob of people would do with John Lennon. We go from being tempted or dabbling in sin to taking a close look at what sinners do and choosing that. And then finally, if you stand there long enough with the sinners, you will end up sitting down in the company of the mockers, who uh, one theologian says are the most egregiously evil people since they not only sin, but they also turn around and mock the innocent. And so if you are with the mockers, you not only turn your back on your old life, you then make fun of those people who are still on that walk. And so the point here is that sin starts small and it escalates. And that is what these words are trying to show us. And so while isolation is not an option, and engagement for us as Christians is mandatory, the fact remains that the company we keep does matter. And so the only way to be blessed is to turn from these temptations. And that is where happiness lies. And this avoiding of temptation would have been especially important in the context of the Psalter, because so much of the first 41 Psalms deal with the goodness of God in light of the human suffering and the public defeats that Israel was facing. And so if you recall, this is not a very pleasant time in Israel's history. And so you can imagine how frustrated the Israelites must have been, trapped in captivity again, still awaiting on God's promises. You can imagine them sitting there thinking, why doesn't God answer us? We keep suffering. Are we foolish to remain faithful to Yahweh? It would have been a lot easier for them to simply give up. And so this verse is written to comfort them, but also to confront that fear. This is a reminder to them that they still only have two options. And it's also for you and I to hold close to as well, church. Because haven't we all asked God to show up and at some point been met with silence? When, we, when someone we love gets bad news, or we don't get that promotion, or we lose our job, or somebody insults or attacks our dignity. We cry out, and at times, God seems nowhere to be found. 
And it can be so easy to cave in when we come against, up against opposition in our culture, when we see people who live differently from us. It can be easy for us to put our faith to the side. And so we must resist that. But like I said, we can't just leave society. And so there has to be a plan that God gives us to combat this. Well, verse 2 is where we get that battle plan on how to do this. And we see that the blessed person delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on his law day and night. Now, there are two key words that help us here in this verse. The first is meditates, and the second is law. Uh, first, meditates in Hebrew is Hagah, and it has a much different meaning than what we would traditionally say meditation is today. Uh, if you ask somebody what meditation is today, you're probably going to imagine somebody sitting cross-legged with their palms out, eyes closed, breathing deeply, and trying to empty their mind of all thoughts. Well, that is not the case here. Uh, there are several meanings for the word in Hebrew, and the first we see is the act of plotting. And so this can mean to plan or to strategize. Uh, the word can also mean to study, to speak, to muse, to utter, or to imagine. And so we see that this is a word of action, of engaging the mind and filling the mind, not emptying it of all thoughts. And then what exactly do we mean by the law? Our minds will probably naturally jump to a moralistic frame and think about the Ten Commandments. Yet the Hebrew word here goes deeper, and it's actually a word that we're all familiar with, Torah. And so this, of course, is the first five books of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And for Christians today, we should, of course, consider this the entire Old and New Testament. And so, yes, the law plays a role in a traditional sense, but so does the entire story of Israel's redemptive history. And that's very important to keep in mind. Uh, if you look at other places in Scripture, you will see that Torah is translated sometimes as teaching and also as instruction. And so when we say law, we don't mean rules. We mean the covenantal law that was established in Genesis 12 with Abraham and through him, Israel, as well as you and I. God tells Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and bless those who bless you. And if you recall, Abraham did not do or achieve anything. Genesis 15, 6 tells us that Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Or we can look at Exodus 20, verse 2, right before the Ten Commandments are issued. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God saved them and then the law was given. At LSQ, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service each week. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastor and church leaders. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us for worship on Sunday. You can find out more details on our website by visiting lincolnsquare.redeemer.com slash worship. Now, let's get back to this week's episode. And so the law, when taken in this way, is designed for our blessing as God's people. God gives us the law because he loved us first. As Tremper Longman says, the image that should result from following the law is that it will be a return to Eden-like conditions between each other and with God. And so by following the law, we return to our most natural state, one which is honoring God for who he is and for what he has done for us. And so the law ideally will become, as one writer puts it, our pleasure and our preoccupation. And so think of it like this. It's so tempting to think that we have to follow the law, but in reality, it's that we get to follow the law because of his love. And so when we find ourselves in the presence of mockers or scoffers, 
Willpower alone won't do. Only the entire word of God can protect us. And so out of these two things comes the picture of what this person will look like in verse 3. A tree planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in season, and whose leaves do not wither. They prosper in all that they do. And so the image that comes to mind here is the lush, green, healthy tree. But more importantly, it is the stability that is described. This tree has a foundation. It has roots. And we don't have to walk, stand, or sit with anyone or anything else if we are firmly planted in God's word. Now, compare this to the image of the wicked that we see in verse 4, uh, which he describes as shaft. So let's not all pretend to know what shaft is. I can't imagine it's the word that a lot of us use today. Uh, I'm from Ohio, but contrary to popular opinion, I did not grow up on a farm, so I did not know what it meant either. And so for those of you who don't know, shaft is the outer covering of grains of wheat, which have to be separated and removed when someone is harvesting grain. It's the junk that you throw away or that gets blown away by the wind. And of course, this is what we're comparing the wicked to. And Charles Spurgeon describes it as intrinsically worthless, dead, unserviceable, without substance, and easily carried away. Very lovely image. And so this is a very stark contrast to the lush, healthy vegetation that we see in verse 3. And so in these two images, the tree planted in streams of water and the shaft that the wind blows away are the two places or destinations where each of these ways or paths end. And so we see that whether we are blessed or whether we perish, it is going to be tied to where we seek our counsel. Do we seek it in the word of God, or do we seek it in the company of those who walk far from him? Well, verses 5 and 6 make things very clear, and they announce the verdict for us. The wicked will not stand, and sinners will not be counted among the righteous. The Lord is with the righteous, and the wicked will self-destruct. God will not confuse the righteous and the wicked, and each side will receive their proper due. And so let's pause here for a second, because this is a lot of times where our engagement with the psalm ends. We read this, we see what's good and what's bad, and we ask ourselves, which path will I take? And so this is a good question to ask ourselves, but it's also very short-sighted. Because if we stop right here, this becomes a sermon about morals. And so let me clarify here, because there is no doubt that if you follow these instructions, you will absolutely improve your relationship with God. You will certainly benefit from meditating on his law and being mindful of the company we keep and avoiding temptations. So don't, make, don't hear me wrong there. But let me make something very, very clear to you this morning. This will not save you. And as we said, this psalm is an all-or-nothing psalm. Now, there is no in-between, and the text does not say, blessed is the man who walks in the counsel of the Lord 60% of the time, or who lives a good life and mostly does a good job, but sometimes screws up. There are two paths and two destinations. And so this presents us with a very serious problem. And so the question then is, what are we to do with this? Because when we finish reading this, the first thing that we think is, well, I'm going to go the way of the righteous. I'm not walking with the wicked, standing with the sinners, or sitting with the mockers. End of story. But hold on. Our good friend Paul in Romans 3 quotes Psalm 14, and he reminds us that there is no one righteous. There is no one who does good, not even one. And so if this is the reality that we face, then we have two choices when we are approached with this dilemma. We can work as hard as we can to achieve perfection, read the Bible tirelessly, only associate with the most wholesome of people, and go full-on works righteousness mode. We can save ourselves. And yet when we do this, we are crucifying Christ all over again. This is the quickest way, ironically, to show our Lord that we really aren't meditating on his word at all. We are working exclusively to save ourselves. 
Or the other thing we can do is simply give up, like so many of the Israelites were considering at the time of this psalm's writing. If we are trying to be perfect, this inevitably is going to become too much, and we will simply say, I just can't do this anymore. And truthfully, you know, I can't tell you how many times I have seen, and I'm sure many of you can relate to this too, people that we know and love, who love Jesus, serve the church, but then walk away because something, or oftentimes someone, pulls them in another direction. Uh, And this can happen to any of us too, given the right circumstances, where we are not that picture of stability and health that we see in verse 3, but more like the stony stony or the thorny ground that we see in the parable of the sower, where seeds of the gospel have been planted, but our hearts have not quite received the word in full. And we have idolatry and distractions and lust and all these things prevent the truth of God's word from growing inside of us. And so what are we to do? Because we can't satisfy God by avoiding the wicked, the sinners, and the mockers. Try that for the next week to avoid any sort of negative influences, and let me know how that goes for you. Further, we can try as hard as we can to meditate on God's word and follow his law and avoid temptation, but the fact remains that in some way, shape, or form, we will be influenced by what is wrong, and we will be led astray. And so here is the stark reality that you and I are faced with. Of the two ways or paths that we have in this text— We are doomed to follow the way of the wicked. Okay, well, I think I have depressed you all enough by now, but I honestly could not be more excited to tell you the rest of this. So let's go. Uh, Because there is, in fact, a way, and there is, in fact, a path to achieve righteousness. Deuteronomy 31.8 tells us, And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. And how does we do that today? How does God do that today? Well, John 14, 6, Jesus tells us of another way, another path, himself. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. Because you see that Jesus went ahead of us, and he walked the steps we could never walk, did the things we could never do, and faced the things that we could never face so that you and I don't have to. He became human and experienced every struggle, temptation, and emotion that we do because he loves us. In John 15, Jesus makes an incredible analogy that brings us back to that green, lush, stable tree and the shaft that the wind blows away. Listen to this. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener, and you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. And so we see now that Jesus is the one who provides us our righteous status. But I really want you to see how he did this too. Because if I just tell you that the answer is Jesus, you'll say, okay, and then you'll walk out this door, never getting to see what Jesus Christ did for you while he was on this earth. And so we have to take a look at how Jesus lived his life. How else can we trust him? Did he actually sit in the company of mockers and not be influenced by them? Did he actually meditate on the law of the Lord day and night? Did he truly have the stability that we could only hope to achieve? Well, if we look at the life of our Lord Jesus, Jesus did not avoid the sinners, the wicked, or the mockers, but he spent his life among the outcasts, the sinners, and the tax collectors. He walked with them, he stood with them, and he sat with them. Look at Luke 19, one of my favorite passages, where Jesus sees Zacchaeus, the tax collector, the worst of the worst, a man who cheats his own people. And Jesus says to him, Zacchaeus, I must have dinner at your house. Only one person came out of that house changed, and it was not Jesus. 
And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. As awful as Zacchaeus had been in his life, all he had to do was believe in Jesus, and like Abraham before him, it was credited to him as righteousness. Well, what about the other command in Psalm 1? How did Jesus meditate on God's law day and night? How was Jesus able to avoid temptation? Well, look at Matthew 4, where Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. Jesus is starving and being offered everything in the world, literally the whole world. And Jesus, and Jesus says to Satan, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so Jesus is not only meditating on the law day and night in a theoretical way, but he is using it actively and on command to deal with the challenges of living a human life. It's simply how his mind worked. And so as I prepared this sermon, I had to ask myself, Graham, how often do you go to Scripture first when things get tough? It's very convicting. But while we're talking about meditating on the Word of God, here is perhaps the most moving example of all. Jesus, the most righteous man who ever lived, was left dying on a cross. And as he hung there, he called out with Scripture again, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even in his dying moments, as he was completely separated from his father, he never abandoned God's word. You know, what is so sad and so beautiful about Psalm 1 is that God promises that he would watch over the righteous. Yet Jesus, the most righteous man of all, who after living a perfect life, was left to die utterly alone. He was left behind like chaff so that we could be welcomed into God's kingdom. And because of this, we never have to be worry about measuring up ourselves. We are completely, let me repeat that, completely covered by his perfect obedience to the law. But further, we are not just covered from our sin. Our God continues to sanctify us and make us new. We are not perfect, but because of the Holy Spirit, we are not shaft that is dying, but we are actually growing into something stronger and more beautiful than ever before. Jeremiah 31 tells us that God will write his law in our hearts. John 14 tells us that the Holy Spirit dwells in us and teaches us all things. Romans 8, Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. Amen. And so what is our response to this? It is what James calls the perfect law that gives freedom. We first believe in what Christ did for us. For this perfect law is written on our hearts so that we can now take this law not to achieve good works and show our obedience, but to use it to bear good fruit to our neighbors, our city, and our world. If you remember Genesis 12, which we had just mentioned, where God tells us that he will make Abram a great nation and bless those who bless him, well, he also says something else. He says that Abraham will be a blessing. And so the law, again, is a path to blessing. For us, but not just for us, through us, to others. And so when we face these coworkers or friends or these negative influences who live differently from us, we don't have to run and hide anymore, but rather relying on Christ's work and being rooted in the word of God, we can work towards living out our faith by using the gifts that God gave us to bless others with kindness, not scoffing, with love and not envy, and with compassion and peace, not jealousy and fear. You know, one of our core beliefs here at LSQ is that we are a church not for ourselves, but for others. And you hear us say that all the time. And this is what we're getting at, being a blessing for others. And it starts with knowing 
that Jesus has earned his place on the path to righteousness, but gave it to you and I. And you know what? Please don't take my word for it. Think of how Jesus has completely changed your life. That is your challenge for the week. Who were you before you knew him? Where would you be without him? Did he not show kindness and love to you? And so now it is our turn to respond to this and walk on this path. And what a privilege that is. And as we follow this path, we grow until one day we see his face and become whole again. Well, C.S. Lewis said that God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. And Jesus literally gave us himself. And so as we enter this new year, we can and should work to improve our lives, but only in light of the fact that you and I are hopeless to achieve what it takes to be righteous. And you know what? Let that be an incredible comfort to you. Because how often in life do we get to say, I'm not perfect, and not only is that okay, it is absolutely wonderful. This is the exact opposite of everything our culture teaches us. The law is there not to make us stumble, it is there for our blessing. And our Lord Jesus lived every instruction of the law to perfection, and yet as 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, and if you haven't memorized this, I encourage you to do so, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you allow us to see how inadequate we are at finding happiness and achieving righteousness apart from you. We thank you that you sent your son Jesus to go through and succeed at everything that we struggle with on earth so that we don't have to. Your son Jesus has done the work and accepted the punishment of the path of the wicked so that we can be deemed righteous. Let this truth puncture our hearts and let this truth turn us toward being a blessing for your people in your city. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already. And we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com.